Hello and welcome to this week's BossCast in conjunction with Property Week. I'm Andrew Teacher, Managing Director for Real Estate and ESG at Montford. And we're joined this week by Sean Simons, who's one of the founders at Compton, previously Hatton Real Estate via Colliers. A fantastic entrepreneur with a great history, pioneering everyone's knowledge and awareness of Midtown offices in London. Sean's going to be talking with us about his journey, about his background with different agencies and why the death of the office is a little bit overrated. Sean, fantastic to see you. Thank you very much for coming in. Why don't we just start with some questions about your own journey? Because it's been quite a fascinating trip. Yeah, well, firstly, thank you for having me. So my journey was GCSEs. My teachers called me in about three weeks before my GCSEs to inform me that I wouldn't have a place to stay regardless of my results. They also informed me that I was only allowed to take six GCSEs, not nine, because my schoolwork was diabolical and they wanted to maintain some good statistics. Wait, what's this for school? Uh, Mill Hill. So I did my GCSEs. I failed them. I went to a sixth form college for about eight weeks and it was enough. I just wanted to get out to work. I knew I wanted to go to work. I was that guy in the playground at 13 buying and selling mobile phones. So I'd always had this kind of dealer mentality in my mind. My dad was an antique silver dealer. I'd kind of grown up in this kind of very dealing kind of environment. So I actually did a day in stockbroking before I went into property a friend of my stepfather's had a stockbroking business and I did a day's work experience. I literally wanted to kill myself by the day's end. It was not for me. <laughs> I then had one of my dad's friends who had a commercial residential management business. He just sold his residential management business and was retaining the commercial business and he needed a junior. And I went for a day's work experience, absolutely loved it and ended up getting the job. I was paid £6,000 a year, which was about £450 after tax a month. And that was the, kind of the beginning of my property journey. It was commercial real estate, not really focused. But today's inflation would be about 500 grand a week. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, it wasn't really focused on any specific part of property. It was kind of a bit of everything. I was the 16-year-old kid. I had a private office on the corner of Marlborough High Street and Devonshire Street. I literally thought I was the bee's knees. The company was called WL Commercial. It doesn't exist anymore but it was kind of multidisciplinary in terms of agency. My first deal was a 9,000 square foot warehouse in Bayswater to a limousine company. It was just kind of one of these things, but I was doing a bit of everything, but rent reviews badly, buying buildings, selling buildings, lease renewals, new leases, retail offices, industrial. After about two and a bit years of working there, I kind of acknowledged that I'd become this kind of jack of all trades guy without really much focus. And then saw an advert in the back page of the Estates Gazette for a job at a company called Collins Commercial. It was run by a guy called Paul Collins. He was looking for someone to help in their office agency department. And I got the job there. And that kind of gave me like a real grounding and focus in office space. So the previous business that you also known for was Hatton Real Estate. And you met the co-founders of that working at Richard Suskins. Yeah. So... Ricky Blair, who I'd actually grown up with, who we went to school together. We used to drive into work together at 17, kind of dreaming of the days where we could have a business together and do all these amazing things. And anyway, that became a reality. And then I met Michael whilst working at Richard. He was already there. So we'd worked for Richard for five years. When you work for a small niche practice like that, you've either got to be part of the action or you've got to do your own thing. I think at the point that we went to Richard to negotiate 
equity in his business, a lot of the business that was being generated was being self-generated. And actually, when you're working in that kind of environment, you need a piece of the action if you are contributing. And we spent nine months negotiating a deal with Richard. Unfortunately, for that to fail, we had some kind of quite big plans for what we wanted to do to his business. And for reasons I won't go into, but we departed Richard. This is 2010. This is 2010. I of the global financial crisis. I was getting married. I think we set up the business in June and I was getting married in December. I just bought a house I couldn't afford. And now I'm launching a business that I've got no idea what I'm going to do with. We literally had no plan. We served notice on Richard on the Monday. We were set up four weeks later. We borrowed £60,000 from two different clients. We had £120,000. That kind of gave us, in our mind, about five or six months worth of runway. And we just kind of went for it. We paid the debt back within eight weeks and kind of the rest is history, as they say. And who were those foundation clients for Hatton back then? Well, it's really interesting because, I mean, one thing we'll probably end up talking about is things like social media and the importance of that. But that was probably the first time in my whole career I'd actually recognised that property is a people business. It's all about the people, not about necessarily the company you work for. Because when word broke that we were leaving Richard all of our clients had basically got in contact with us to tell us they were coming with us. That was before we had an office, before we'd had a company name, before a website was even created. But, I mean, we had people like Threadneedle on the institutional side who were incredibly loyal, people like Derwent London, again, who were incredibly loyal, number of different private clients. You've got to remember, in 2010, it seems ridiculous because it wasn't that long ago. The Eastern City Fringe wasn't really that interesting or wasn't that well invested in. The majority of the property ownership was kind of families and proprietors. Who yeah, it was, kind it was of, also, I remember it being, I mean, I was based around here when mm. I set Blackstock up, which is the business I yep. sold to Montford last year. But after my stint at the BPF and then at BAA, I sort of bedded down at IPD. I was working for Ian Cullen and Rupert Nabara. Ian, God rest his soul, was a great ambassador for me and a great, great help. But we were based in the old Save the Children building right. up on St. Yeah, John, St. Street. John Street. So, yeah. you know, St. John was a great lunching spot and still is. Back then, right, the buildings were Mr. Jones and Mr. Cohen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it was Absolutely. all, it was individuals. Whereas today it's standard life, Threadneedle, it's institutional money throughout. But that's something that's changed since probably around 2009, 2010. So our client base has shifted significantly. Yeah, yeah. And that journey then from 2010 out of the sort of shadows of Nama, of the GFC, of all of the wall of destruction that came from that, how did the next five years flood by, next five, six years? All right, so there's quite a lot to tell you here. So when we set up Hatton, there was... I say we had no plan. We didn't really have a plan. But I do remember on my desk, I had stapled to the divider. I had stapled a set of CBRE's details. It was for a building they were marketing in Farringdon. And it was four or five pages of white A4 paper with lots of black text and one pixelated photo. And I thought, this is 2010, right? This is not the way people should be marketing real estate. And... We kind of said that we wanted, given we were 27 at the time, we wanted to kind of approach it in a much more dynamic way. Yeah. So the view was we should look at ourselves like a marketing agency. We're not just here to lease space. We're here actually to market the space. I think that's something that 
over the years, I think agents have forgotten about. We don't just lease space, we're here to market it. So we really became kind of marketeers. Every building we took on, regardless of size, had a minimum of 10 professionally taken photographs. A lot of the properties we were marketing had videos with them. Our web presence, our Google presence, all of these things became a priority for us. And when you kind of compound that with the fact that we were operating in London's kind of coolest district, which so happened, David Cameron stood in the middle of Old Street Roundabout and named it as Tech City, trying to rival those of Silicon Valley in San Francisco, all of a sudden, kind of, we suddenly determined we've got something going here. Mm. Then there was this amazing story. So about seven months into Hatton, I get a call from an agent. So I didn't really know that well. He said, I'm in the area. I'm walking around with an investor. Do you mind if we come up and pick your brains for 10 minutes? So I was like, sure, come up. And I had no idea who was there. Anyway, about nine of them turn up. So I've got nine of these people. I don't know who anyone is in my six-person boardroom. And they said to me, tell us about Old Street and the City Fringe. And they said it was half an hour. It ended up being about an hour and 45 minutes. And I've still got no idea who I'm talking to. And I am just going off and off and on, talking about the location, the district, the tenants. I'm just going, going, going. Anyway, after they left, I messaged the guy saying, who was I just talking to? I probably should have asked that before, but who was it? <laughs> he said, that was Gerald K. from Helicor Bar, oh. as they were at the time. I said, that was interesting. Great. And didn't hear anything. About six weeks later, we got an email from Gerald asking us to come and pitch for the Bower, which was the old BT headquarters on Old Street Roundabout that they had just bought. And they were tendering the agency to, I think, 12 different agencies. And this was, bear in mind, right? I've explained our background in terms of the ownership yeah, yeah, of buildings. Yeah. This was a major London developer who just bought a site where they were going to develop the best part of 300,000 square feet. Bear in mind, prior to that, the biggest structure we'd probably ever dealt with was probably 30,000 square feet. And all of a sudden, we're getting something of 300,000. So we're sitting there saying, do we do this? Do we not? And we're like, we have to do it. We have to do it. So we threw money at the pitch, which we'd never really done a pitch before. It was probably our first proper, proper pitch. They were developing it in conjunction with Crosstree. So we rocked up to Crosstree's office. It's Mike and I with a laptop, just the two of us. And I remember sitting in the waiting room at Crosstree, waiting to go into this pitch. And outcome, I can't remember which agency, it was either Knight Frank or CBRE, 12 of them. Charts and easels and presentations. And I looked at Mike and I was like, we are screwed. Anyway, we've <laughs> gone in, the two of us with our little laptop, We've done our presentation and it was kind of, we went for it. I mean, we were standing up, our hands were in the air. Anyway, did the pitch. About 10 days later, we're kind of waiting to hear. And we kind of assumed it was going to be bad news, but we kind of put it down. So it was a good experience, so on and so forth. So we had the call. They actually called us together, Crosstree and Helical called us. They were in a room together. And what they said to us was, you guys were there to make up the numbers. They were very honest about it. They said, we didn't really know you, you're this new startup, but when we all decided who we wanted, you guys were the first people we put on the team sheet. And it was at that moment, I often say to Gerald, because he's still a client and a friend of mine. Great guy, Gerald. He's a titan of industry. But I still say he changed my life, genuinely, because it was that instruction. It was, as I said, best part of 300,000 square feet. We'd beaten 12 agencies to get there. Everyone was talking about it. And that was kind of the moment where I kind of thought, okay, we've got something going here. Well, I will have to ask Gerald about this. He's due on BossCast in a few weeks' time. So moving on from that, so you sold the business, you exited the business to Colliers in 2016. And was that planned when you set the business up? And 
what was the thinking there? Because Collier's culturally, it's a massive business. Like, I mean, Yeah, so we sold to Collier's in 2016, but that isn't actually the full story. The full story is in 2013, we had an approach from one of the biggest agents in the world who was interested in acquiring us. Because you've got to remember, the Eastern City Fringe, which was the area that we worked in, no one had really cared about. None of the big agencies were interested in it. But all of a sudden, between 2010 and 2013, it went on the map, especially from the tech sector in particular. And that started driving lots of interest. So one of them approached us. I then opened my gob at somewhere. And anyway, it got out that someone had offered to buy us. And within about a month, we'd had five of the biggest agencies in the world all made offers to buy our business, which was incredible. There was no kind of pre-planned to sell it. We always thought it may be a possibility one day, but we never knew when. Anyway, so we had five offers and we were managing the whole process ourselves. Then came this kind of crescendo moment where myself, Michael and Ricky, we met at my house on a Sunday evening to go through the offers and discuss it all. In my mind, I was gone. I was like, guys, we set up this business three years ago. We had no money. We were paying our mortgages on our credit card. We were pawning jewellery on Hatton Garden. We're now being offered what is considered life-changing amounts of money. We should take the deal. Anyway, I very rarely get outvoted, but I was outvoted on this occasion. They both voted to not sell, and I was devastated and really angry with them. I didn't speak to them for about two weeks. I then apologised for my behaviour because I wasn't very nice about it, and then kind of got my head down and started working again. Ricky then, about... Four to six weeks later, we came back. He called another meeting at my house on another Sunday night and he brought a business plan. And we'd never had a business plan. Even when we set the business up, there was no business plan. And he brought a business plan. It was 72 pages. And on the last page- It was a long business plan. It was a big business plan. It was very pictorial. It was keeping within the brand. It wasn't all text. (laughs) Um, But on the last page of the presentation, he said, I don't know when, but we're going to sell our business one day for this number. Two years later, we sold our business within £100,000 of that number. In answer to your question about Collier's, Collier's on paper, actually, you're right. They were completely different to our culture, our brand, our everything. But actually, credit where credit is due. Of all the people who had previously offered, Collier's were the one corporate who were prepared to let us remain as we were. Whereas a lot of the other people interested wanted to kind of shoehorn us into something within their business. Collier's kind of gave us a lot of freedom. So we had our own office. We ran our own P&L. We were in charge of hiring and firing. We even, after begging them, allowed us to use a black and white logo as opposed to the Colombian flag one, which we felt was more in keeping with the area and the people that we dealt with. So they gave us a lot of freedom. And actually, the five years I spent there were kind of brilliant. And you subscribe, Sean, don't you, to the theory that people follow people. So bringing your clients with you from the edgy brand that you'd created wasn't a problem? I think we had one or two casualties who eventually came back. But listen, property is a people business. And as I said, people followed us from Richard Suskin to Hatton before we'd even set up the name. So us moving from Hatton to Collier's, I think was less severe than the first move, to be honest with you. And thinking on that point, how do you focus on creating that point of differentiation? And what advice would you give people listening to this that are in businesses themselves, that own businesses, that have got careers they're developing? What have been the things that have worked for you? What have been the things that haven't worked? So you've always got to have a USP. You've always got to do things differently. I mean, one small example, I don't know if you saw the Christmas film we just kicked out, but 
that's kind of a classic example of how we try People to can see this on your LinkedIn. You can see this obviously on my LinkedIn. But it's just a way of differentiating ourselves. So typically end of year videos amongst our competition, it'll be a bloke or a woman sitting at a boardroom table reading off four minutes of statistics about all the things they've done that year. Whereas for us last year, we had a sheep feature, we had a 16-piece marching band. It was kind of a very different way of attacking it. We've not had a sheep on here before, but we do obviously, as you know from being here today, demand that people come with no scripts, there's no accompaniment, and that's a big thing about this podcast other than the audio quality and having only very good-looking guests, Sean Simons, just the fact that it's massively unscripted. and It is totally... Uh, but as I said, our whole shtick, I guess, is we just like to challenge convention. So yeah. that comes to the way we communicate with our clients that's the way we market our real estate i think the one thing that as i said i said this earlier but i think what a lot of people who do what i do forget is that they're actually a marketing agency people think they're surveyors and they are there to provide advice and let space and of course they are but they can't provide advice and then let the space unless they've got the marketing elements of that correct and Mm. for me the way hatton previously and now compton The one thing we have always been kind of market leading in is the way we present our real estate and present our businesses to the market. It's a much more friendly, consumer-facing product. I mean, I'll give you a really basic, basic example. If you go onto many of our competitors' websites, you are probably a minimum of seven to eight clicks away from being able to get to the information you want. With Compton and also previously Hatton, you're there within two clicks. We are desperately trying to get it down to one click. We haven't quite found a way to do it. But it's basics, right? Now, where do you do most your online shopping? For most things you need around the house. Well, that'd be for Amazon. Right. For most people, right? And why do you use Amazon? Because there's no buggering about with credit cards and things. Right. And- so using that theory, why should selling real estate be no different? Now, if you were buying a toaster, right? You're going to buy the toast for Amazon because you know you're two clicks away from having that toast delivered within probably 24 hours, if not less. Whereas if you go, I don't know, John Lewis, right? John Lewis, yes, it's a great business and it's brilliant and everything else and they've got great product, but it's five or six clicks. You've then got to put your card details in. It's just all a bit of a faff. Whereas Amazon, check it, click it, delivered. And that's how we look at Compton. It's a marketing business. And I think a lot of our success has been in the failure of our competition understanding that process. Yeah, I mean, it's a similar sentiment to Danny Daggers. Very, uh, mm. you know, similar. I know Danny. You, you know Daniel very well. But how do you square that unconventional approach with what you've described as more institutional, more conventional clients? How does that align? But we offer the same service, right? And if anything, as I said, I mean, one of the reasons that we've continued our focus on the Eastern City Fringe is because no one can quite provide the level of advice that we can provide in our district. We've got the most amount of years behind us. We've done statistically the most amount of deals over the last 15 years. And we know everything that kind of moves in that location. But for us, we are very good at being agents. We are as good as anyone else in terms of the product, if not better. We're quite aggressive in the way we really? kind of do our business. <laughs> Well, I've got a story for you on that in a second. But as I said, we do the same as everyone else. The advice we give is good. The way we report is highly professional. The way we document our deals is in line with market standards, totally in line with market standards. We just create 
extra layers that kind of differentiate ourselves. I mean, talking about the aggressive nature. So I told the story when people offered to bar business three years in. Two of those businesses who we turned down decided that, all right, they're not going to sell to us. So do you know what? We're going to go into competition with them. And actually what these two global businesses did was they set up Hatton real estate versions within their big businesses. You probably may know who they are, but they set up these small silo teams. They put them in kind of skinny jeans and they employed young people and thought, right, we're going to go and copy their business models. Yeah, I, I know exactly who you mean. And it was war. For two years, they literally went after every single one of our clients, canvassing them, calling them, meeting them, all sorts of tactics. And actually, looking back at all the things that have happened in my career, that's probably one of the best things that's ever happened because it made me kind of realise that you can't take these things for granted. Competition can set up all the time. And we literally went to war. I mean, lo and behold, both of those departments are now closed. They failed. But actually it gave us this kind of level of aggression. We've worked so incredibly hard. And I know everyone says they work hard. We work relentlessly. And anyone who's worked with me or a client of mine or an agent, they'll know how committed we are. But we've worked so hard to get to where we are. There is no way we're going to let anyone easily take over what we've accomplished. So that level of aggression, we are incredibly protective. We're aggressive about going after deals and business. We will never cross the line. I think it's really important to say we know where the line is. We will always be on the right side of the line from a moral perspective. But business is business, right? I've got lots of friends who are competitors. Business is business and everyone kind of knows where they stand. Mm. So where is business right now in terms of the city fringe? And how is Midtown faring versus the West End versus the city versus I'm going to give you a... So, Nothing is winding me up more at the moment than the way things are being reported within our industry and by the press. There was something recently, I think it was in the Financial Times, talking about rental growth, right? But what This rent- would have come from ages, though. The FT wouldn't of have just made it's, that up. There is a lot of irresponsible reporting going on. I mean, if you follow me on LinkedIn, I am quite outspoken on LinkedIn. I think it's quite important to report an honest narrative. And I feel there are lots of agents in the market for self-preservation, reporting inaccuracies in the market. So yes, they're talking about rental growth, but actually what they fail to recognise is that that rental growth is only on the best space in the best locations, which actually probably represents less than 5% of the market. So for the majority of people who are reading that, it's nonsense. So right now, the market is in a really tricky space. And these are the facts, right? Yes, don't get me wrong, there are some very big pre-lettings happening in the West End, in the city. I mean, you would have seen the HSBC deal recently being reported. And yes, big tenant, big amount of space, best-in-class building. We don't know the terms yet, but no doubt it'll be really good terms. But there's a lot of space that's not letting. And why is it not letting? So there's a few factors to consider. One, we still do, as much as it pains me to say, there is still this kind of COVID hangover. I think if you look at someone like Amazon as a case in point, Amazon pre-COVID had a 300, 350,000 square foot requirement to move. That was then put on hold when COVID happened. That requirement has not come live yet because Amazon, my understanding of it is, Amazon still can't quite determine how much space they need. They haven't quite picked up on new working pattern. Who's in when? What's the frequency of it? So there's a lot of uncertainty and you've got to remember if Amazon are making a move for 300,000 square feet they're going to commit to a minimum of a 10-year term if not longer that's a 
hundreds of million pound commitment, they're not going to do that without the data to support it. So we still have this kind of COVID hangover lurking around. Sentiment, I think we are, even though we are not technically in a recession, there is a real kind of air of recession hovering. Businesses are typically struggling. I mean, listen, my wife is a makeup artist. And even in that department, people are making less bookings. I see a personal trainer, right? My personal trainer is reporting that his online bookings have slowed because people are much more conscious about spending money. Mm. So I think all businesses, no matter whether you're in property, recruitment, banking, makeup, personal training, I think everyone is feeling the pinch at the moment. And given that the biggest expense businesses have is property and people, if they don't have to make a decision around property right now, why would they? And then the third element, which I don't think is spoken about enough, is the lack of activity from the tech sector. Now, people assume that the tech sector is just the Eastern City Fringe. Now, yes. And by tech sector, just to be clear on what you mean by that, you mean social media giants like well, TikTok, Facebook. You've got the giants, but you've also got the startup culture. So if you look at the success of Ultra over the last 10 years has been effectively based on high growth technology-based startups. Now, put yourself in a tech startup. So there's one particular client I act for who sold their business for it's about 150 million a few years ago. They raised money back in 2012. They raised a huge amount of cash off a loss-making business. That cash was cheap to borrow because of where interest rates were. They raised a lot of money and they were given full freedom as to how they could spend that money. And I think at the time they attributed 12% to real estate. Today, if that same company were looking to raise money now, they would get less money, the less money would be more expensive, and they would be told how they could spend it. So they previously had freedom, they now no longer have that freedom. They've got less of it and less freedom. Mm. So if you take tech, which has been responsible for over 50% of take-up in central London, I think over the last five or six years, if that suddenly comes out of the market, it affects everything, absolutely everything. So... This is a moment in time. This is not the end of tech. I mean, you've got AI, which is going to arguably be an even bigger boom industry than what we've seen over the last 10 years. We've got no issues around the future of it. But right now, London generally, across all districts, unless you've got the best building in the best location, it's not easy out there. So as we move into Q3, Sean, what should people be looking at for the year ahead, you know, for the rest of this year and the first half of next year? With caution, if I'm being honest. And listen, that does me no favour saying that, but it's my true belief. I mean, there were a lot of agents at the beginning of this year saying, yeah, don't worry, it's going to be a really tough H1 and then H2 is going to be fine. The rest of this year is going to be difficult. I think it's going to be really, really difficult. And I actually feel that with the interest rate environment, I think there are a number of property owners who are arguably one void away from being in significant trouble. There is also, which again, people are not talking about, there is this cloud of WeWork going on at the moment. You've seen what their share price has done in America. I can see by the way they are promoting their space, they are firefighting vacancy. Now, WeWork occupy, I think it's over 3 million square feet in central London. If there is an event with WeWork not being able to survive, unless someone comes in and takes that over... It could be a real big issue. And again, no one's really talking about it. Interesting. I mean, there's probably only two or three people that could take it out. Yeah. 
and you'd like to think they probably would, because actually, even though, yes, they've got vacancy in some of the awful buildings that they should have never acquired in the first place, actually, a lot of their buildings are occupied. And I think it would probably, I mean, I'm not an M&A expert, but... We need to find out Mark Dixon's what we need to do. You probably do, yeah. But that is something that people are not talking about. I mean, we were talking about it a few years ago. I think it was when we were was still massively on the incline. Yeah, but surely, were... I mean, even if they were a cat with nine lives, they're through their nine lives now. The market has benefited from WeWork because actually, listen, property is a very, very this simple... Is, it's very easy to criticise no, WeWork. No, but they pay for are... quite a few Lambos in the Asian community, haven't they? Uh, <laughs> no, well, property is a very simple economic structure. It's supply and demand. And actually, what WeWork did at a very fortuitous time is they became a lead contributor for taking space at a time where on the back of the global financial crisis, there weren't that many people taking space. So it benefited naturally. But did it falsely inflate pricing for everybody else and thus the market? Um, Many would say it did. I'm not sure it did because actually, whatever you say wrong about WeWork, what WeWork actually did virtually single-handedly is they rewrote the script for how occupiers take space in central London. The WeWork effect is bigger, I think, than people give them credit for. So let me put some substance behind that. No, I agree with the point. Pre-WeWork, you were either a conventional occupier or you were a serviced occupier. You were either an occupier of Derwent, Lansac, British Land, or Regis, the office group, and whoever in that service office sector. What WeWork did is they kind of broke down barriers. They actually, with their enterprise offering, with their larger deals, with the way they were refurbishing spaces, they broke down the barriers. And actually, for all the wrong that WeWork did, they did plenty of things wrong in their growth. The one thing they did, maybe by accident, was they actually merged the conventional worlds and the service worlds together. I mean, standing here today, there is... Very little difference in product, not across the whole market, but in a certain part between a serviced offering or historically a service offering and a historic conventional offering. And you've got to remember, the occupier of today, they don't care if the building's owned by WeWork or British Land. They just care about the space. And actually what WeWork have forced the market to do is make the serviced office operators look at more conventional ways of running their businesses. And they've made the conventional landlords become more service focused. So they've actually done a lot of benefit for the market. And do you see a time where far more of the office world is operationalized in that way, where, as you say, the conventional REITs, the conventional developers have been operating businesses to compete, but there still seems a little bit of a disconnect. Within the next five years, I'm virtually certain that space sub 10,000 square feet, unless it is fully turnkey, is a redundant product. Mm. So that's the way the market is going. Occupiers are demanding more, rightly so, just because property has delivered space in a certain way for so many years doesn't mean it should modernise. And actually, I think the modernisation it's gone through the last five years and will go through in the next five years are what's needed for the modern day occupier. And in terms of tech in the office, not just tech occupiers, but what role do you see that having? Because again, it's not really there yet, other than some apps and some key systems. It's pretty... I think a lot of it is a lot of fluff and a lot of nonsense. I mean, I think the things that are going to be important to occupiers moving forward are things surrounding ESG, sustainability, green buildings, buildings that are good for the environment. I think the ability to turn your lights on and off through an app is gimmicky, whereas actually yeah. ESG and, as I said, sustainable products 
are going to become a really important component for occupiers when deciding. And is it all about refurb? I had a look around Chancery House and the mm. office group building. It's an amazing building. Which is wonderful. It's a great job they've done, carving out the basements, loads of outdoor space, yep. loads of natural light. Other people, Tyler Goodwin, Seaforth, obviously a big name in Midtown, but another great exemplar in this industry. Is it the only game in town now, refurb? No, I think refurbs are obviously the most sustainable way of delivering buildings. It may not often be the most viable way of delivering buildings. Or even the most cheap. Correct. Putting the question slightly to one side, I think you've got to focus on what occupiers want. Yeah, that's re- yeah, my next but, question. Really. But whether it's a refurbishment or a new build, it's what's going into these buildings that is the most important. You've got to trust the likes of the office group or Seaforth to make the correct decision with regards to the real estate. So if it's suitable for a refurbishment, they'll refurbish it. If it needs to be knocked down and started again, they will make that decision. But once it's been built or once it's been developed, it's what goes into it. And yes, occupiers are more demanding. And I think especially with the pressures of work from home as now a viable option for some employees, creating better workplaces for businesses to thrive has never been more important. Mm. And in terms of your own workplace, let's talk about Compton for the final bit of this podcast. How have you sought to create that culture for Compton over the last few years? I mean, you started off obviously, came out of Collier's midway through the pandemic, setting up again. What have you done differently this time? How have you shaped that culture? And what are the things that other people could learn? So, Culture for us, I think, is one of our biggest success stories. In all the times I've run teams and businesses, which, I mean, five years at Hatton, five years at Colliers, and now two years at Compton, we've actually never lost an agent to another agency. We've lost people who've gone either into tech or client side, but we've never lost a member of staff to a competitor, which is something I'm quite proud of. Fundamentally, we have an interesting recruitment policy. We don't care about a degree. We don't care about A-levels. We care about the people. We have a bottom-up recruitment policy. We very rarely recruit. I mean, we've only done it three times, recruited senior people. Most of the people who we've employed started at the very, very bottom and have worked through over the years, kind of building themselves up into more senior positions. We give people lots of freedom. So I've got guys in my office who are 21 years old, who if they were a big firm, they wouldn't get the opportunity to deal with the product they're dealing with for probably another 10 years. We give those younger generation an opportunity to deal with things they wouldn't normally get to deal with, which if they're successful means they can earn significantly more money than they would earn at other places. And we kind of throw people in at the deep end. I mean, I've just had one guy start. He's been with us for two weeks, no property experience whatsoever, and we have let him off the leash. Mm. It's kind of a sink or swim approach. All we demand is absolute commitment to the cause. We have a kind of a work hard, play hard mentality. But I think the view is if you trust your staff, they will give it back to you in Spadesworth. So just finally then, what are you expecting out of the market over the next few months, next year or so? What's your view on... The government situation as well, which many people think will change colours at some point next year, potentially. What effect do you think that might have on London, on the office market? I used to be obsessed with politics. I used to watch the news all the time. I used to follow them all on Twitter. I was totally engrailed in it, but I've completely lost interest. I know this is a very sweeping statement and I probably shouldn't say it, but I just find them all incredibly unimpressive and useless. And I've got to be honest, whether it goes from Conservative to Labour, whatever eventuality happens, I don't think it can be a bigger impact than COVID 
or Brexit or even the global financial crisis. I think it will just happen. You'll have one really disappointing group of people who kind of come out of power to be replaced by another really uninspiring, disappointing group of people running the country. So governments aside, I think for me, property cycles, I've now done this, this is my 23rd year. We know it goes up and then it goes down and it goes up and it goes down. We are currently in the downward cycle. We will be here, in my opinion, I think if you look at the interest rate situation, you look at sentiment, you look at office take up, I think it's probably at least another year to run on this kind of downward trajectory. So I'd like to think by next summer or next autumn, I think we should hopefully be in a better position. And by the way, it's not like there are no transactions happening. And I think it's really, really important. I mean, I kind of speak as if things are really quite negative. They're not that negative. There are deals happening. I mean, I said to you before, as a small business like ours, we've got 74 transactions currently under offer. We're actually on track to have a really good year in our disposal business. Investments are a different matter. So it's not like in the global financial crisis or COVID where everything stopped. It's just downward. But I think there are some things to sort out. I reckon it's another year. Mm. That's on the positive side. And obviously it goes without saying that you're convinced about the future of offices, whereas other people think they're totally going to die off. How are you as a business dealing with working from home? We don't allow it. We don't allow it. It is nonsense. And I get loads of aggravation from people. I'm very outspoken about my views. People think there is a bias because obviously my livelihood is renting office space. If people don't rent office space, I've got no livelihood. But truly, it's not a biased opinion. From first-hand experience, I could not have created Hatton nor Compton without being in an office. As I said, we have a bottom-up policy. We recruit young people. How can Mm. these guys learn if they're working from home, first thing? It's not just applying property. That applies across every single industry. I've got friends who work for tech companies. They've never met their colleagues. I mean, not only are they miserable at home, lonely, and their mental health is a problem, but they're not advancing in their careers because they're literally spending all day with themselves and their cat or their dog. There's also a social responsibility. And I've said this before, but if workers are not in city centres, the whole infrastructure upon which we have become accustomed to and rely on fails transport public realm retail leisure service all of it fails so there is a social responsibility there are these keyboard warrior morons on linkedin or social media who are kind of pressing this narrative which i just think is nonsense and by the way for the record i appreciate it's not a one-size-fits-all I appreciate there will be people in the working environment who are suited to working from home and benefit from working from home. This is not a one-size-fits-all. But for the vast majority, being in an office is good for business. It's good for the economy. It's good for individuals who want to progress their careers. And those who argue differently, I just think are misguided. That's some wise words from our next Minister for Property. (laughs) <laughs> I'd, lo- I'd love to do it, by the way. I get them all back. Well, no, we should start the campaign right here, Sean Simons. Thank you very much for coming in. Thank you very much. Sean Simons, one of the founders at Compton, formerly Hatton Real Estate. It's been a pleasure to talk to you today. I've been Andrew Teacher, Managing Director for Real Estate and ESG at Montford. Thank you very much for listening. And we will see you again very soon. You can subscribe to Propcast on Apple, Spotify, Amazon, SoundCloud, wherever you get your podcasts from. Do suggest some more guests and we will see you very, very soon. Thank you.